You're listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Lauren Fultenberg, Alyssa Hurst, and I'm Nicole Militello. Right now, Derek Chauvin's murder trial is unfolding in Minnesota. He's the former police officer facing charges for the death of George Floyd, which sparked protests across the country and around the world last year. While we're watching closely from our homes, 12 jurors and three alternates are carefully listening to and analyzing every shred of evidence in the hopes of coming to a decision. That jury is made up of nine women and six men. The court says nine of the jurors identify as white, four identify as black, and two identify as multiracial. And their ages range from in the 20s to in their 60s. Now, these jurors have the power to make a decision that will not only impact the families of Derek Chauvin and George Floyd, but will also send a greater message to society. So what are the prosecution and defense looking for in a juror? How important is the selection of a jury? And what might this mean for the Chauvin trial? We asked DU Law professor John Campbell to join us and break down how this whole process works, starting with selecting the people who will make this major decision. Yeah, so jury selection, although it varies a little from court to court, has sort of some common features. So the, the first thing is, is that there's always gonna be more people who are called to jury duty than end up on the jury. And the, the idea behind that is that in any given case, there's any number of reasons that some people who showed up for jury duty might not be a good fit for one side or the other. Some of those are really mundane. It might not even have to do with one side. So it might be, hey, this is gonna be a two week trial and somebody raises their hand and says, my son has surgery in four days and I have to be there. And the court says, you're gone. Somebody says, you know, I have a job interview and it's very critical that I attend and it's during trial and they're gone. So there's attrition for very basic sort of pedestrian things. Then you have what happens next in jury selection, which is you have some number of people that the attorneys are talking to and learning about, and the court might be asking them questions too. And you can imagine that, for example, in a criminal case, if somebody raises their hand and says, I've had a number of interactions with the police, I don't trust the police, and there is no police officer who could testify that I would ever trust under any circumstance. Well, of course, the prosecution doesn't want that juror, and the court might even agree that that juror's views on life for this case mean they'll struggle to listen to the evidence. Somebody else might raise their hand and say, I'm so sick of the police being harassed. I think Black Lives Matter is a terrible idea. I back the blue. And if an officer says that, I believe it because they're heroes. Well, now the defense really doesn't like that juror, and the court might agree that they too don't sound exactly neutral. And so things like that happen through selection and the purpose of the questions by the lawyers and the court in a, in a good setting are to find the predispositions. We might call them biases, but it's not a negative word, but these preconceived feelings that might impact the juror's ability to decide the case. The goal being, I think in most courts that do this carefully, that we exclude sort of the outliers on both sides that would be very likely to vote for one side or the other despite what the evidence might be. And then we get people who can listen. They're not, they're all gonna have their life experiences and that is good. In fact, the literature on jury deliberation tells us if we have a nice diverse jury, not diverse just racially, but diverse in lots of viewpoints, you actually get a more robust discussion and you're more likely to sort of get to the real facts in the case and the real decision. So that's good to have diversity, but it's not good. And the research confirms this too, to have people that have such deep biases that they've sort of decided the case before it started. So that's jury selection in a nutshell, is to take a really big group and filter through a variety of filters to end up with the goal being a jury of the people's peers who can reach a fair and, and just decision. 
Is there another layer of screening for jurors? Like, would they look at their social media and realize, oh, hey, you have liked certain photos or you've posted certain photos? Is there any extra layer of screening? So, yeah. So if we want to talk about sort of the maybe spooky part of jury selection, but certainly happens, is let's imagine that you've done a detailed study of what are good and bad jurors for you. And you know, for example, that people who consume a lot of Fox News are bad for you in a case. Well, you could ask people, but they might lie. But if you screen all their social media and you find that they have posted 18 things from Fox News, then you know they watch Fox News whether they tell you they do or not. So in high profile cases, it is, it is very common that attorneys on both sides, if allowed, and every state has kind of different rules about how much you can do, are digging in and doing background research on jurors. So much so that I've been in some cases where the other side it was clear to me had picked the jury before they showed up. They already knew who they wanted to see, who they were afraid of, and what their dream jury was before they asked a question because they'd had a week of background digging. And with a week of background digging, they'll pull their financial records if allowed, they'll pull their voting records if allowed, they'll pull their political donations, they'll pull their social media, they'll pull their known associates, they'll pull their job history, they'll look at their house, they'll look at what cars they drive. And before the jurors ever sit down, they will have that person profiled pretty well and they'll know whether they want them or not. How much can the makeup of a jury and the people on it impact the outcome of the case? So the, the, out, the makeup of a jury, I think, is the single most decisive factor in case determination. Okay? So for example, um, I know a number of lawyers, including myself, who view the jury selection process in our trial as probably at least as important as all the other things combined, which is saying something when you think you've worked on the case for years, you might try the case for weeks, there's thousands of pieces of evidence and dozens of witnesses. But that what we know, and I've done um, some research through the University of Denver, along with um, a professor named Valerie Hans at Cornell, a professor named Lee Ross at Stanford, and a professor named Jessica Salerno at Arizona State. We've studied this question. And what we found is, is that certain biases, depending on the case, Certain biases are highly predictive of how jurors will vote. So much so, for example, in a civil case, we found that people who believe that civil lawsuits are bad, they hurt society. Overall, we have too many of them. Overall, jurors give too much money in civil cases. Overall, there ought to be caps on how much a jury can give. We found that those people were something like three times as likely to vote for the defense. So you can imagine if you seated a jury of only people like that, the defense would be three times as likely to win as an average jury. On the other hand, if you sat a jury of people who said, I think lawsuits are good, they hold companies accountable, we need more of them, I love lawyers who bring them, you might be three times as likely for the plaintiff to win. And the only thing that would have changed was composition of the jury. The evidence would be identical. So we know that who we seat can, and who's in that box, the jury box, that can be out, absolutely outcome determinative. So if so much goes into like carefully crafting who is on this jury, can it really be considered an objective jury? So it's a great question. The answer is actually kind of counterintuitive. I would say it's the only way that you could say the jury's fair. Because what we know is, is that from lots of different measures, in any given population of people, for any given case, there'll be a lot of people who have biases that make the case hard without being sort of boring about it. You know, if you were talking about a case where some uh, the doctor's accused of not diagnosing cancer in a, in a civil case, people who've had experiences with doctors making mistakes or who've had a loved one die of cancer might view that case very differently than somebody else. 
If you're talking about the George Floyd case, for example, people who've had experiences with excessive force by police may view the case radically differently than people who haven't. If you don't go through careful selection, you could accidentally very easily seat a few people who really can't listen to the evidence or don't want to, who say, look, you know, in the George Floyd case, imagine if you had a couple of people who said, I don't care what they prove or don't prove. I already know what I think about this case and I know what I want to do for social justice. Or my uncle's a police officer, my father's a police officer, my brother's a police officer, and I will never hold a police officer liable because it's a hard job. If you don't ask questions, you could seat those people and they're not listening. And in that sense, it makes the entire trial irrelevant. If instead you try to find those biases, exclude those people, what you get are people sort of in the middle who say, look, I might have some views, but they're not fixed. I'm listening. I, you know, I don't know. I can see both sides of this case. And I understand that the, the, each side's kind of views, at least generally. Those people then, when they sit down in deliberation, can have a good, honest, robust discussion and reach a result. And so I think, although people often think, oh, but they're trying to engineer the case to have their best jurors. That's true, but both sides do that and the court oversees it. So what you really end up getting in a good process is you throw out the really sort of in the tank for one side and in the tank for the other, the people who would never really think, and you get the people in the middle. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Derek Chauvin's trial specifically. So the potential jurors were sent a 16-page questionnaire can you talk to us about what kind of questions they were asked and how those were considered moving forward with the process? Yeah, so I looked through that questionnaire with great interest because it's not all cases that have questionnaires, but of course in high profile cases where they expect a lot of people know things about the case and there's more bias in the population on both sides, questionnaires are a fast way to learn things about jurors before you ever bring them to court. So if you look at that questionnaire, it's interesting. It has some very standard things you see on lots of questions. You know, where do you get your news? Um, how do you view the world? I mean, things that help us start to understand how jurors think a little. It also has a lot of really concrete questions about, do you think, for example, that black people are more likely to experience excessive force than white people? Um, do you think that police officers um, in Minnesota in that setting, um, do you think that they tend to use force too often? Have you ever had an experience with the police and we believe that they treated you poorly? Um, it had a matrix even said a variety of statements like I've just said, and then say strongly agree to strongly disagree with scores so that each juror could in theory be scored on a bias scale, highly police favorable, highly um, Floyd favorable, so to speak, right? And so that questionnaire, I, 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 I know, was used to internally on each side, figure out their favorite and worst and least favorite jurors. It was also used by the court to flag people who, hey, we don't even need to talk to them. They have such a personal feeling about this case or so much knowledge or so much connection that we shouldn't even bring them into court because there's no way they should be a juror in this case. So that's how they used it moving forward was as an initial screen. And then the lawyers were allowed to follow up when they had questions for people who did still come to court. After the questionnaire, they're brought in and then they're asked questions by the judge and then both sides. So what is each side looking for and kind of what does that process look like? Yeah, so there's two things going on usually. So it, typically the prosecution goes first in a, in a, in a crim, criminal case. And there's at least a few things going on. So one thing is, is that to the extent the court allows it, both sides like to sort of preview the facts of their case a little. They, it, it would be dishonest for lawyers to say they don't like to start to persuade the jurors a little. They want to build a relationship with the jurors. They want the jurors to start to like them and trust them. And they might even want to start 
getting out some of the core things that maybe they'll say in court later. There's two reasons for that. One is probably I'd love to preview my case to the jury. The other is you got to see if there's people who just won't listen. So, for example, if the prosecution said, look, a couple of witnesses in this case are going to be officers and we're going to build our case with officer testimony. And we need to know, are you willing to listen to officers? Then they're going to listen for jurors who say, hey, I think officers lie all the time. I've seen them lie and I won't listen to an officer. And if all you've got is police officer testimony, that'll never be enough for me. Of course, the prosecution needs to find those jurors because the case is over before it starts with those jurors. On the defense side, similar goals in that you want to build trust and relationship. You want the jurors to start to feel like you're being candid and fair with them. But of course, they're looking for the opposite. They're looking for the people who say, you know, look, my, I, I, you know, I used to be an officer or I have a family member who's an officer or an officer saved my life or and I just don't think I could ever bring myself to hold an officer, find an officer guilty no matter what you show me, because I just think on net, I don't want to do that. They got to find those people or else the case is over before they start. And through, throughout these questions, the goals are always that, to find the jurors who have biases. Now, we haven't talked about it, but it's sort of an interesting side note is typically what happens is the attorneys study these cases before, and they already know a lot of things that are good and bad for them. So what they'll do is they'll present their case to dozens or hundreds of mock jurors They'll ask them the same questions that are on that questionnaire. And then they'll see, oh, you know what? When we win, we win more with people who said this on the questions. And we lose more with people who said that. So they have what we would call predictive analytics. They know, all right, when I go into court, people who scored, let's say they scored a 20 on that scale we talked about earlier, where you strongly agree to strongly disagree to questions. If they score 20 or better, they're really good for us. If they score 20 or less, they're so-so, and 10 or less, they're terrible. Well, they're going to look at those questionnaires, start looking for the good and bad jurors, and then go talk to them to see if it's still true and try to see if they can figure out how to keep the good ones and get rid of the bad ones. Interesting. So those mock jurors, are those are just people who have agreed to like participate in answering those questions ahead of time, or how do they find those people? Yeah, we can be done a lot of ways. So I actually, you know, outside of my role at DU, I have a, a company that does this. Mm -hmm. um, and what we do is an attorney calls us and says, I want to study a case. And we look for workers, often online workers. And we can recruit, for example, on a given case, 500 people that will review the plaintiff and defense or prosecution and defense case. And what's neat is, is if you have 500 people review a presentation of evidence, which usually written images and video, and they're just watching it on their screens, and then you have them vote, will they vote for liable or guilty, depending on if it's criminal or civil. They tell you why they did it. You can do all kinds of neat things. Then you can do statistical analysis on how likely are you to win, which jurors are good and bad for you based on their demographics, based on their answers to board your questions, based on the questionnaire. And then you've got these people who were maybe logging on to do whatever work they found. They're, they're workers who edit books online or whatever else, and they saw a jury study. Mm -hmm. You pay them, and what you get is a massive amount of data. And I can tell you with absolute confidence that in a case of this profile, some form of that analysis has happened, and the attorneys entered the courtroom already with some idea of what would be most favorable to their side and who they should be very afraid of. During the questioning for this trial, some people expressed that they were concerned about their safety if they were chosen. Others said that they couldn't manage the stress and trauma related to serving on this jury. Um, so how are those kind of comments taken into consideration? The attorneys might take them into consideration. They may have their own views on whether that's good or bad. There's two ways jurors get thrown off of a jury. For, one is what's called a peremptory strike. 
And what that means is each side is allowed to excuse some jurors for no reason. So they, they don't have to give a reason. They can just, they might have their own reasons internally, like, hey, on our scoring system, they're a bad juror. Um, but to the court, all they have to say is, your honor, I would like to exclude juror number 12 using one of our peremptory strikes. And the court gives them three or six or nine, depending on the case, how many to use. The other way jurors get off is for cause. And what that means is the court is convinced that there's enough evidence that that juror is not appropriate for this case. So in, in a situation like you're talking about, if somebody says, look, every day that I'm sitting here, I'm not gonna be thinking about the evidence. I'm gonna be terrified for my safety. And I don't feel like I can go back to my community safely after rendering a verdict in this case. The court may very well for cause exclude that juror because they don't want to put a juror in that situation and it calls into question sort of whether the juror would be able to do the job. Um, so when that kind of thing's voiced, most courts will err on the side of, of excusing those jurors for two reasons. One, it's kind of the humane thing to do. The other is, is that in a case like this, what the judge doesn't want is to get done with this whole trial and get a verdict, whatever that verdict is, and then have it go up on appeal and the appellate courts say, yeah, but you had a bunch of jurors on that case that you shouldn't have had. So the typical sort of default then is, let's try to pick a really safe jury where people really did say they can listen and be fair and they don't have anything so obvious that makes us think they can't. Mm -hmm. So that if we go through all of this, we don't go through it twice. We don't get reversed and do it again. Okay, so how can we make sure that all voices are given a fair chance during jury selection? Because one of the women that was questioned said that she was a single mom, she wasn't going to be able to find childcare for four weeks, or if we have like hourly workers that can't afford to take off for the trial, how can we ensure that these voices are still, um, you know, being heard in this process? So your question is really insightful. And unfortunately, the answer is not totally satisfactory. I would tell you that there are what we call selection effects and who ends up on juries. And they start really early. So for example, in some places, they only call people to jury duty who are registered to vote. They, that's how they find the list of people to call. So of course, if you didn't register to vote, you're an equal citizen in that community, but now you're not called. In some states, they use driver's license data. So if you're a poor working class person who takes the bus to work, you never get called to jury duty. So before we ever get to the courtroom, there are problems with who gets called to jury duty. And I, I would tell you that I think it's, it's pretty clear that who shows up for jury duty is not fully representational uh, representative of the community, which is a, a problem to start with. And then we have the problem you just described, which is now who's most likely to be able to serve? Well, the elderly, retired people who are not having to go to work are more likely to be able to serve. Wealthy people are more likely to be able to serve. People from uh, homes where you have two people working so that one can cover for the kids are more likely to serve. People without children are more likely to serve. And so I think that the hard answer is we don't have a fully representative group in any jury. And it is true that single mothers, the working class, the poor, the people with less access to transportation, um, all those things. In the digital age, with all the Zoom trials that have been going on in the civil side, we've had the same problem, which is if you don't have good Wi-Fi, if you don't have a good computer, if you don't have access to technology, if you just don't know how Zoom works because you don't get on business calls. We've seen those people underrepresented in juries. Mm -hmm. And studies show that black jurors are struck at a higher rate than other jurors. And an NPR story talks about how um, the experience that comes with being black in America is enough to get jurors struck from a case. And so there's a lot of talk around this jury and how it's more diverse than the county that it's being tried in, which is 74% white. Um, so what is different about this jury case selection? 
Well, I think because this is high profile, we're seeing the very best efforts at jury selection. I would tell you that it is a sad truth in America that in some cases, including criminal cases, sometimes a jury's picked in under an hour. And you can imagine that there's no way that we dug into the biases of every juror and right. were careful to make sure. And I have seen cases where all three strikes by the defense or the plaintiff, one side or the other, or the prosecution were black jurors. And the problem is, although you're not supposed to strike based on race, it is very hard to prove that because if, if, if when you raise the challenge to the court and say, hey, all black jurors were struck. If the other side says, well, yeah, but one was a hairdresser and we have something that says that people who like to talk a lot aren't good for us. And one expressed this view and that's why we did that. And so it's coincidence that they're all black. It's very hard to prove otherwise. So the reality is that we often seat very imperfect juries. I think in the Floyd case, the good news is because the world's watching, mm -hmm. they spent basically two weeks picking that jury which is unheard of. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's an amount of time that is unheard of. They sent out questionnaires first. They talked to each juror sometimes for hours. And so what we got was a genuinely diverse jury. I, I think that's wonderful. And I think it means the literature is clear. It means we'll get a better deliberation and a more fair result, whatever that result is. But I think if people were to believe this is how most criminal juries are picked, they'd be sadly mistaken because this is the exception, not the rule. Yeah. Is there talk in the law world of what maybe could be done to make the jury selection process more inclusive to make sure that we are reaching these voices that we've talked about that aren't um, usually being placed on a jury? Yes. So there's a, two, two ways to go at that, I guess. One is we're publishing a paper this year, the same authors I mentioned earlier, a paper that shows that you do have to invest real time in, in jury selection and that judges who say, there's a tendency for judges to say to jurors, hey, I know you all have your biases, we all do, but can you set them aside and be fair? And what we found in our research is that's a meaningless question because everybody will say yes, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean they can. They might really want to, but it's not so easy to take our deep-rooted biases and simply set them aside. So one of the solutions to start is we have to be willing to invest time in jury selection, and we have to call more jurors to selection with the idea that, hey, we might have to throw out 30 or 40 or 50% of all the people who showed up before we get that diverse jury. There's also been talk about, you know, of course, there's always talk about raising the pay for jurors. Um, you could imagine that if we had a law that mandated that if you serve on the jury, your employer must pay you your full-time pay, you had paid leave, that that would change things dramatically mm -hmm. because we don't have that. And so somebody can can say, well, I could come and serve for jury duty, but my, my employer is not gonna pay me and I can't live off the jury pay. Well, you either have to solve that with more jury pay or more legal protection for the people who serve. And then I personally believe that we have to look at how we call jurors so that we're doing a more effective job of calling jurors from the entire population to start with so that we don't have a problem before we even start talking to them. With such a high profile case, especially like this one, how hard is it to find jurors who are open to hearing that advice? And then what signs do the defense and prosecution need to have and see to actually believe them that they are open to hearing that evidence? Yeah, it's, it's a good question and it's tough, right? And especially in a case like this, where you would have had to have lived under a rock not to hear of it, right? right. It, it, I think they had to accept. And if you look at the, the jurors they seated, you see that they, they realized they could never pick a jury of people who said, I just don't have any preconceived notions. Mm 
I think what they looked for were people that at least showed real and genuine indicia of that they weren't locked in. And I can tell you having picked juries, sometimes you can hear it in the answer. So some jurors will say, this is what I think, and this is it, and I, I feel very serious about it, and it's all for one side. There are other jurors who, as they start to talk to you, say, well, look, I think based on what I know, I guess I'm leaning this way, but you know, I did hear this other fact, and I mean, I guess it made me wonder, and I don't know, I guess there's a lot I'd wanna know, and if, 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 if I heard these things, then I could think about it more, and what you hear is a deliberative person mm -hmm. who sounds genuinely open, which is reasonably hard to fake. And I think most attorneys, are looking for that. They're looking for someone that shows indicia of curiosity, uh, who shows that they are self-critical of their own comments. Um, and if you can find that, you feel like you have an honest chance, right? Um, and, and I think they were given enough time in this case to get to do that, uh, to get to actually listen to people and hear whether they were sort of dog dogmatically locked in or they were showing signs that they're gonna listen. And do you think with the jury that's been selected for this case, can we tell yet how the makeup of the jury might affect the outcome of the case? Well, I don't have analytics on this case, mm -hmm. but I've studied cases very similar to it in the private setting and the academic setting. I will tell you that <clears throat> the fact that the jury is, is, is female was probably not an accident on the, certainly on the prosecution side. Um, there is some literature that would suggest that a female jury might be more likely to convict in this setting. There's some of that. Um, I think the fact that the jury has far more black people on it than maybe if you just had the, the percentages from the population, mm -hmm. it is hard to find a world in which, I mean, it's hard to believe that's ever going to hurt the likelihood of, of conviction uh, because we've seen in cases that when you have this racial element like this one and you have sort of black lives matter and blue lives matter sort of head to head in a case, that black jurors see the world differently uh, because they've had different experiences with the police. Uh, and so, you know, if I handicapped this case on selection, I'd say the prosecution won the selection battle. They have, a, they have a jury that a number of people expressed some negative feelings about the police, mm -hmm. some levels of sympathy for Black Lives Matter. Uh, and those jurors were seated and we'll wait and find out because deliberation means that they'll really work through it and one tough juror who really makes everybody ask hard questions will mean they have good discussion. But, you know, if I had to call it based on the evidence in the jury, I think the prosecution's ahead. Anything that we haven't talked about that you think is important that we should mention? People in the U.S., we've had a tendency in the last 20 or 30 years to question the work of juries. Uh, I think it became very popular in the media to talk about the runaway jury who gave too much money or the runaway jury who did this or the jury that some juror fell asleep. But what I will tell you is, is as a jury researcher who's gotten to know, I think, every single good jury researcher in the country, all the academics that have been doing this, some of them 40 years, that what the evidence is absolutely clear on and what all those researchers agree on, even if they agree on nothing else, is that jurors take these jobs very seriously, um, that when they get into deliberation, they work very hard, that because there's 12 of them in a room, they rarely make factual mistakes because even if one person says, well, I heard this and they're wrong, there's four others who took notes and say, no, that's not how it worked. And that although no system is perfect, allowing a group of everyday individuals to work through the facts is to my mind still the best way we know to avoid biased decisions, to take the decisions out of the hands of one judge or one person and put them in the community's hands. 
And in that way, um, you know, I am deeply satisfied to see that they worked hard to pick a fair jury in this, in this case, because I think that when we get a result, we're much more likely to get one that was carefully considered and free of bias than if we had thrown this to any one person. To read more research about jury selection, visit our show notes at du.edu slash radioed. Alyssa Hurst is our executive producer, James Swearingen arranged our theme, and Tamara Chapman is our managing editor. I'm Nicole Militello, and this is Radio Ed.